Let's take our Bibles, look in Acts chapter 7. When we left Stephen, he had been dragged into this council that seems to have nothing better to do than to meet and to try to shut down the apostles. And they had quickly recognized at the end of our study last week that they uh, were no match for the Holy Spirit, that their lies and their logic was no defense for the argument for Christ. And that this man standing before them full of the Holy Spirit uh, was powerful, not as a human, but as someone that was being used of the Lord uh, to speak the truth. We have uh, pretty much concluded that Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul in Acts 9, uh, when he was saved on the road to Damascus, uh, is, is in the middle of this. Uh, that's evidence that the start of chapter 8, um, that he was right in the heart of this, uh, probably making arguments against Stephen because he was very intelligent and knew how to uh, argue Judaism. So uh, we see a little picture of what's ahead with him, and we'll look at that more next week. Um, but the leaders and the people were stirred up at this point. They were uh, angry. They were hostile. Uh, there was opposition uh, of a new dimension here. And this very bold man, Stephen, was standing for Christ and was declaring the gospel. The trap really has been prepared. Uh, they've lied about him. They have accused him of things. The worst thing in their minds that they've accused him of is quoting Jesus, uh, which would be a great thing to be accused of, wouldn't it? And the stage is really set for them to go ahead and condemn him. We don't know what the punishment will be. Um, because we've never seen uh, death punished up to this point in the book of Acts. Uh, so we don't know what it's going to be, but by the time uh, Stephen gets done, uh, they want to kill him. What they did not count on was that this Greek convert uh, would preach one of the greatest messages, if not the greatest message, on Jewish history uh, that has ever been preached. And in doing that, he showed how much these men, this council, these people that were opposing the apostles, opposing the work of Jesus Christ, how much they had um, followed the pattern of Israel's rebellion all the way back to the time of Abraham. And that culminated in the crucifixion of Jesus and would continue even to this day in terms of how Israel still is resisting the Bible and the message of the gospel and Jesus Christ. So this really is a huge chapter. There's a lot to, to get here. We obviously can't do it all. We can't even read it all. We wouldn't have time to do that this morning. But what this message holds for us is very powerful and, and reassuring truths about the way that the Lord works and how God fulfills His promises. Now, tonight we're going to look at the first section of chapter 7 and we're going to talk about how God leads us. And the challenges that he allows in our lives sometimes to draw us closer to him. But this morning, we're going to actually go in reverse here. We're going to take the middle of the chapter. And I want to talk this morning about what the Lord wants to do in every person's life. And how we can recognize and avoid what hinders that work. Now, Stephen lays out three very important principles here in this text in chapter 7 about what the Lord always wants to accomplish. And he shows how people both accept that and reject that. By the end of the chapter, he's going to show that these men that he's talking to are not only resisting God's gracious work, but they were complicit in killing Jesus. And that was emblematic of what their forefathers had done in resisting the Lord. Now, when he brings that indictment at the end, 
And doesn't do that harsh and judgmentally. He does that by speaking the truth. They could have responded by repenting. They could have responded by saying, you're right, all the Jewish history that there is has shown a resistance to God, and we've done the same thing, and we've crucified Christ, and we need to fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and repent. But they don't. They end up martyring Stephen, and that introduces a widespread persecution that's led by Saul himself. But before all that happens, before we get to that chapter 8 next week, I want you to see how Stephen makes his case. And what he does here is not focus so much on their guilt as much as he focuses on God's goodness and God's provision for his people. He starts the message, we'll see this tonight, by talking about Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. But then in verse 39, he transitions to talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. And that draws everything to a comparison of how these men had responded to Jesus. I hope that makes sense. Let's pick up the text starting in verse 35, just for a little bit of context, and we'll read down to verse 53. There's a long section, so please follow along. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, talking about the people that were in Egypt when Moses came to deliver them, is this the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush? This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness, together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, and who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers, verse 39, were unwilling to be obedient to him but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us, for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt. We don't know what happened to him. That's when Moses was delayed up on Sinai. At that time, verse 41, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it's written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victim and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Ramtha, the images which you have made to worship. I will also remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers. In other words, as they went to the promised land until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of House, will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? Then he gets to the heart of it. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you've now become. You have received the law as ordained by the angels, and yet you did not keep it. Three truths this morning. The first truth is that 
God always wants to move people from bondage to deliverance. God always wants to move people from bondage to deliverance. Now, throughout the Old Testament, there's no greater evidence of that truth than the fact when God led the people out of Egypt and to the Promised Land. The whole 40 years from slavery to possession is as definitive as it is dramatic because there is clear evidence, there's unmistakable proof that God is leading them and providing for them and that His hand is on them. And He shows His power and He shows His miracles and He shows the people that He is over all things and rules all things and that He is caring for them and that He's patient and kind and merciful and that His word is sure. And even though Israel constantly fails Him, even though they callously rebel against the law and push against Him and argue with their leaders and continue to just be a, be a pain in the neck, if I can use that, if I can use that phrase, right? They're just a pain in the neck. They can't get their act together. They're just, they're just constantly against God. God keeps moving them from bondage to deliverance. Now I believe this is one of the most understood truths about our Lord in our culture today. Because most people still don't know that God's foremost desire for all people is that they would be saved. There is no greater verse, I think, in the Bible than God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What better news can we give people than if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or that as many as received Christ, to them gave He the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. So often we hear the the perception that God is harsh. And that God is not loving because He allows bad things to happen. Or that His rules are too strict. Or He doesn't allow enough freedom in our personal lives. Or that He's intolerant. Or that He's exclusive about who can be saved. And you know what? The enemy loves to promote those lies. He loves to tell people that God doesn't really offer deliverance and He doesn't really offer freedom and joy because it's not the kind that we would define. And here's the sad reality. If people don't know that God's greatest desire is for all people to be saved, then the burden of responsibility for changing that is on us. The Holy Spirit convicts, the Holy Spirit works, but He has given us the responsibility to take the message of the Gospel and to change people's impression of God. He wants us to let people know. Now, maybe people don't hear us talk enough about the transformation that's taken place through Christ. Or maybe they don't see enough evidence of a sacrificed, holy, sanctified, set-apart life that's different from the world. Whatever it is, there is this strong perception that God wants us to be in bondage to His harsh laws instead of the fact that God wants us to know the absolute joy of being delivered out of the bondage of sin and to live a new life that is marked by righteousness. You know what? We need to change that. Now maybe you need to hear that this morning. Maybe you need to know that whatever you've done, however you've lived, 
however you've rebelled against God, that God is willing this morning. He is willing to deliver you from the bondage that you are under. I was once under it. Many people in this room were once under it. We are under the bondage of sin. And God said, as we've seen this morning, I will deliver you from that. I will save you from that. Please don't think that God doesn't care how we live. That when we get to the end of our lives and we die and we stand before Him, that God will just say, you know what, it's okay. I'm just going to overlook everything that you've done. I'm just going to accept everybody, even if you cursed me, rejected me. It's fine. I'm tolerant. I'll just take anybody. And please don't think that the devil's lie is true when he says, you're safe if you just do some good things and go to church once in a while. That that, that will satisfy God's holiness. Stephen knew that these men, right here in chapter 7, were, were still trying to live by the law. So as a Greek, he points them back to Jewish history and says, what about our forefathers? What about what they did? Were they not living proof of just how unwilling and unable every single one of us is to perfectly obey God's standard of perfection? Don't we see it now? Jewish leaders, don't you get it? Just look back through history. Look back at verse 39 for a minute. Because he says, these, these people who had every advantage, they had God's visual presence, they had His clear law, they had His promises, they had His leading, they were obstinate, they were unwilling to obey. They actually repudiated Moses and they repudiated God. The word there literally means to refuse and to push yourself away from. And then he says, they turned their hearts back to Egypt. What an affront to the Lord. What, a, what an awful thing to say to God after God had sent a deliverer and brought them out and delivered them miraculously, not once, but twice. And as they moved into the wilderness and God came to meet them with the law and He gave them the, the example of what they were supposed to do and He gave them a godly man to lead them, the people said, we don't have anything to do with you. And they became stubborn and, and literally pushed God away and said, we wish we were in Egypt. But then they went a step further. When Moses was on the mountain meeting with God for days, they got impatient. Everybody's got a short attention span, right? Oh, this Moses, this guy who led us out of Egypt, we're still not sure about him. You know what? We're kind of tired. We're sick of standing here waiting. They can hear God on the mountain. They can see the presence of God surrounding Sinai. It was not a huge mountain. They can see it. They hear the thunder and the lightning. And they know God's up there meeting with Moses. But they say, we're tired. We're impatient. You know what? High priest, we want to build our own God. And they give them their rings and their jewelry and their necklaces. And they melt them down. And they build a calf. And they say, this calf, the one we just watched come into being, this is the one who led us out of Egypt. And then, the end of verse 41 tells us all that we need to know about the heart of man. It says they rejoiced in the work of their own hands. If there's any doubt that the heart of man is deceitful, and that we have no intention or capability to satisfy the holiness of God, the incontrovertible evidence is right here in verses 39 to 41. But here's the amazing thing about God. Even though He disciplined them, 
even though he killed a generation of people that had done evil against him, even though he made them wander, he did not give up on them. He could have wiped out the whole nation at Sinai and said, I've had enough. I'm done. Nobody gets to go forward. I told you there was going to be a promised land, but you haven't deserved it. Instead, God wants to move people from bondage to deliverance. So he kept moving them toward the promised land and he raised up a new generation and the new generation started to listen to the Lord and started to hearken to the Lord and God said, I'm going to keep my promise. We're going to the promised land. Because I'm not going to allow you to go back into bondage. I'm going to deliver you. Now here's the second principle that we need to understand. God is always near to his people in order to meet with them. God is always near his people in order to meet with them. When you look back at Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, it is fascinating to see that the presence of God never left them. From the first day they set out to the time they crossed the River Jordan where the water was stacked up miles away, he was always there. He was guiding them and protecting them and reminding them of his greatness and his power. They went through the Red Sea on dry ground. They had the cloud and the pillar of his presence that led them every day. Moses was meeting with God at Sinai. They uh, had his manifest present in the tent of the meeting and the tabernacle. They had the constant presence of the ark, which represented God. And then as they get to the Jordan and they cross into Canaan, God does it again. He puts the water aside. They walk through on dry ground. And God says, see, I've been with you the whole way. Even at their motive of greatest rebellion, when they essentially were cursing God and breaking the first commandment and saying, we want this God instead of you. God said, I'm not giving up on you. I'm still going to be near you. Now, what does that tell us this morning? What, what truth does that give us that will, that will reassure us and strengthen our faith this morning? Well, first it tells us that God is unbelievably gracious to us. Far more than we could ever imagine. The Bible says that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, that He's slow to anger, and that He's rich in love. And I want to tell you this morning, that's an understatement. He's gracious. He's compassionate. Oh, I love the next words. He is slow to anger. Aren't you glad God is slower to anger than you are? I got a little Irish in me. I've got a little bit of a temper. Just a little one. Never shows up when I drive. My kids never see it. My impatience and my anger when I drive. Put me in the south and let me drive and that's another story. He is slow to anger. God, who has got every right to be quick to anger, is slow to anger. And then those next three words. He's rich in love. Oh, I'm glad for that this morning. Look at the examples from the text where the Israelites resisted God. Go back to verse 9. They sinned by being jealous and angry at what God was doing in Joseph's life. And then you look over at verse 39. They sinned by 
hardening their hearts when God called them to obey. And then in verse 40, they sinned by being impatient and ignoring God's commands and building a false idol. And then in verse 41, they sinned again by being proud and worshiping themselves. And then in verse 51, they sinned by being resistant and stiff-necked toward the Holy Spirit. When you look at all those examples and you think about the history of the wilderness, it's hard to imagine that God would have continued to show mercy. It's hard to imagine that after all those examples of them disappointing Him and rebelling against Him, that He would continue to work and continue to lead him them and, and continue to be slow to anger and rich in love. It's hard for us to imagine that God would do that until we look at our own lives every day and realize how many times He does it each and every day. Just stop and think for a moment. How many times in the last 48 hours God has been slow to anger with you? When you've sinned against Him, when you've had an evil thought, when you've said the wrong word, when you've done something that was immoral, whatever the case may be, we're not looking for a a litany of sins at this point. Just think about it in your own life. How many times God has been gracious to you in the last 48 hours? Aren't you glad that He is rich in love? Aren't you glad that He is kind and forgiving? He's more gracious than you and I can ever imagine. And second, we see out of verse 43, that that when the Lord stays near His people, His ultimate desire is for us to be with Him for all eternity. Look back at verse 44 for a second. Because He says there were methods that God used in the Old Testament to, to be near us. There was the tabernacle, and there was the ark, and there was the temple. But each of those things were temporary. And Stephen says here that that... These were God's dwelling places. These were the places where God's presence would come down and would fill it, or where it was a representation of God's presence. But then I want you to see in verse 48, he says, don't get too attached to them. Because the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Why? Because heaven is His throne. Even Jesus took up residence for a short time on earth in a human body, to prove how great God's desire is for people to be delivered forever. But but your preoccupation, men, is with what's temporal. That's why you got so riled up when Jesus said, I'm going to destroy this temple, and in three days I'm going to raise it back up. And they misunderstood that and thought that He was talking about brick and mortar, but Jesus was talking about His own body. But, But they assumed, oh, He's being subversive. He wants to tear down the temple. And they miss the greater spiritual truth that God draws near to us to save us. God comes near His people first and foremost to save them. And then He comes near His people to minister to them. And then He comes near His people to walk with them. And then He comes near His people to protect them. And then He comes near His people to answer their cries. When we come tonight and we call in the name of the Lord, guess what? God will be here. When you walk in this room tonight, you walk into the presence of God. Right now, you're in the presence of God. When we call, He answers. Because He comes to His people to minister to them. Never forget that. If you feel lonely and frustrated and discouraged, and like you don't have many friends, and like nobody cares, know this morning that God cares. Know this morning that God is near you whenever you call.
He's proven it throughout history. And then look at the third truth. God's promises are always fulfilled. God's promises are always fulfilled, even if it's in a way that's different than we expect. We're going to study that more in depth tonight in prayer meeting. But but keep your place here in Acts 7 and turn for a moment back to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. God's promises are always fulfilled, even if it's in a way that's different than we expect. Now, as we read some of these verses, I want you to notice the certainty, the certainty with which God tells the people that He's giving them the land. And I want you to notice the scope of Moses' instructions to them. And then, after we look at that, we're going to briefly read the reaction of the people. Start in Numbers chapter 13, thank you for turning, and verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan. Look at the next five words. Which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. Send out a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. Drop down to verse 17. When Moses sent them out to spy the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they're few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps, or do they have walls? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make every effort, because they don't have MapQuest or Google Maps at this point, Make every effort to find out and then get some of the fruit of the land. In other words, God says, I'm assuring you, based on my promise, not only when I delivered you out of Egypt, but go all the way back to Genesis 12, the covenant that I made with Abraham, I promised your forefather Abraham that I would give him this land. I'm going to make a great nation out of him. I'm going to give him a land to dwell in and I'm going to bless him and be his God. I mean, God's not going to bring them all the way to the promised land after 40 years and let them fail, right? So Moses says to the spies, not, hey guys, now you're smart and you're tactical. Go in and analyze if we can actually take this thing. He never says that. He says, go in and assess the scope of the enemy and the condition of the land and then bring back some samples because we want to know in advance just how great it's going to be. Moses isn't equivocating here. He's not saying, Ooh, I don't know. I'm not sure this is going to happen, so you guys go find out. Are we okay? No, he doesn't say that. Go assess. Are there walled cities or not? Are there a lot of people or not? And he's clearly not concerned about victory because he says, find out if there are a lot of trees. Bring back some grapes. This will be great. But look what happens next. Verse 25. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Great, everything's good, right? End of verse 26, we've got the fruit ready to go. Then they told him, we went into the land where you sent us. And it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is the fruit. Yay, everybody's good. Nevertheless, uh uh-oh. That's a bad word. Nevertheless, 
That's a word where there's no faith. The people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the defendants, uh, descendants of Anak there. Everybody gets uptight because you can see in verse 30 that Caleb tries to calm everybody down. And he says, look guys, we're going in. God told us this is ours. Caleb, one of the spies with Joshua says, look, I saw it. Yeah, they're big and the cities are walled. That, that is nothing for our Lord. But then go to verse 31 because it's tragic. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. That's true, but they're not too strong for God. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. Oh, I wish that said and cried out to the Lord, but it doesn't. They lifted up their voices and cried and the people wept that night and all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. What a mess. There's no confidence in the word of the Lord. There's no trust because they can't see it. They have to try to rationalize it. There's no faith whatsoever, so they assume the worst. Believer this morning, don't ever let this be your reaction to the leading of the Lord. When God makes a promise, it is sure. Now, I don't know how they thought this was all going to play out, but they concluded, we can't do it. It's not the way we want it to be. We wish the people were just laying down dead and that we could walk in and all the walls of the city were torn down. So because we can't, we're going to panic and we're going to despair and we're going to live in fear and we wish we could just go back to that wonderful paradise resort that was Egypt. They have no expectation, no hope of what would actually happen that God would part the water again, that they would easily strike down their enemies, that they'd march around the city and blow a trumpet and the walls would just fall in, that they would go from city to city and they would defeat their enemies without any effort. Why? Because God always fulfills His promises. There are thousands of promises in Scripture and God plans to fulfill every one of them. His promises are yea and amen. So be it, it's done. I said it, it's going to happen. And what these men that Stephen's talking to, go back to Acts real quick and we're done, what these men that Stephen were talking to and the people who were stirred up against him refused to see is that that deliverance from Egypt and that move into the promised land was just a microcosm of the greater spiritual principle that Christ had come to show. And that principle is that being brought out of physical bondage and brought into freedom in God's land was nothing compared to God's offer to bring us out of spiritual bondage and give us freedom in heaven forever. Oh, come on, council, listen. God brought us out of Egypt and into the promised land, but you're missing it. The greater principle is that Christ just came to bring us out of bondage and to give us freedom forever. But here's the rub for so many people that requires a change in our thinking. From self-reliant and confident in ourselves 
to humble and dependent in the Lord and confident in the work of Christ above all else. That's what Stephen's getting to. That's why he preaches this long sermon about Jewish history. And it's what he's confronting when he says in verse 51, you guys are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your heart and ears. Stiff-necked there means stubborn and obstinate. And uncircumcised means that their souls were closed to God's conviction. Even confronted with all the evidence and all the facts of man's sin and God's grace using their own forefathers, they're still resistant. And instead of repenting, they become more hostile. The text says in verse 54 that the truth literally tore open their souls. And they started to gnash their teeth. In other words, they set their jaws in anger. Their, their hostility was so powerful that they almost couldn't even speak. They just ground their teeth and they were so angry at him. And then they yelled out with a loud voice and they covered their ears, so symbolic of the way their hearts were. And they yelled out and they rushed at him. The phrase is tragic in the text. They rushed at him with one impulse to silence him forever. There are only two responses to the truth. Either you reject or you repent. The Lord had done everything to save them. He had proved His deliverance. He had come near them. And He fulfilled His promises. But they wanted nothing to do with Him. But notice, and we're done, how He provides for Stephen. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. As he senses the hostility of the people and the leaders, he looks up and God opens up the window of heaven. And there he sees Jesus Christ. And it's interesting from the text because he says Christ is standing by the throne. Every time in Scripture we see Christ, he's seated at the throne. But here Christ is standing. And I believe that's because God is taking a special interest in what's going on in that council. He's looking down and saying, what's going on there? And he sees his servant who's full of his spirit being rejected. And he sees them preparing to stone him. Oh, it's a beautiful thought. And Christ stands up. And he gets ready to receive his child. There's the anticipation there. there there's, there's a preparation where he's not just sitting back going, what's going to happen here? He stands up and he says, I'm watching. I'm watching. Stephen, you're about to come be with me. You stay firm to the end. But I'm ready. 
Aren't you glad this morning that when our time comes to an end in this strange land that we live in, that our Savior will be there to greet us because He saved us? And maybe you don't have that confidence this morning. Maybe you've been stubborn and resistant like these men. Maybe an apathetic about it. But now the Spirit of God has shown you the reality of your situation. And I have to ask you this morning, are you going to continue to turn your back to Him or are you going to turn to Him for salvation? See, it's a stark contrast between those who resisted Christ and the one who has the confidence and security of trusting in Christ. And if you're here and you've never received Him this morning and you've never accepted His offer of eternal spiritual deliverance. This morning is the time to turn your heart to Christ and say, Lord, I confess my sin. I I, I confess that I have rebelled against You. I need salvation. I get it. I see it. I I see how human history has proven that I can't do enough. I'm too impure. Just one sin would be enough. So, Lord, forgive me. Deliver me. Come near to me. You said you would. You prove it. And for those of us who, who maybe there's somebody here this morning that that trusted Christ at one point. You made a decision. You prayed a prayer somewhere. But you haven't been living for Him. You know that He's the Savior. But your heart has gotten hard and resistant. And your faith is dull. And and your, your morality is not pleasing to God. You're walking in sin. You're, you're not walking in holiness. You're not set apart. Listen, same thing. God wants to free you from the bondage of sin and self. You have to confess that self-reliance and, and trust in Him. This is, this is serious. And, and what makes it so wonderful is that God has done all the work. He's done all the work. He doesn't want any person in this room this morning to be living in bondage. He wants to deliver you. Let's close our eyes for a minute and just allow the Lord to speak to us. I don't know where you are with the Lord this morning, even those that I know fairly well. I I can't judge your heart, nor do I want to. Only you know. Only you know. We've been challenged a lot over the last couple of weeks about whether we're spirit-filled and whether we're walking with the Lord, even this morning. So let me ask you very directly as your friend, are you in bondage? Are you still living under the control of sin, whether all of you or whether part of you? I want to challenge you and I want to encourage you and I want to exhort you. Bring that before the Lord right now. Confess it to Him. Ask Him to release you from it. Ask Him to forgive you. Oh, He's slow to anger and He's rich in love. He's so willing to do that if you'll just confess it. But I beg you, don't walk out of this room this morning. Still suck stuck under the under the control of sin he'll deliver us and free us from it forever he's pre-
promises that. And he can't break his promises. Father, you know the hearts of each of us. You know my own heart. Lord, where there is impurity this morning, I pray that you would convict. And I pray that we would confess. And I pray that you would cleanse. Your deliverance is so wonderful. Freedom is so unbelievably awesome. And I ask you to work in our lives, not only this morning, but each and every day. As your mercy is fresh for us every morning, that you would free us and deliver us. And show us the joy of life in you. Lord, we thank you this morning that that is sure. That we don't have to wonder if you really will forgive us or that you'll really exonerate us. You've already done it. Lord, may we walk with you so faithfully. Father, keep the enemy from us. He's going to bring doubt and confusion. He's going to be whispering in ears this morning not to confess to you. But Lord, I pray that hearts will be changed and that you will get the glory. We thank you. We praise you. Lord, we love you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name.